I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, we talk with Dr. Sarah Myrie. She's a public scholar, a climate scientist, and she's also one of the founding leaders of the Seattle branch of 500 Women Scientists. This was a really fun and important conversation for me. Dr. Myrie sees her work as a public scientist in a much broader context. She's an advocate for equality and diversity in science, and she's also a strong advocate for women's voices in science and in society as a whole. In fact, we talk about this in the context of how women's bodies, how we dress, our appearance, and even how much we weigh all play a role in our professional lives. Now, Sarah is incredibly funny and she's engaging, which is really important given that one of her focuses as a public scientist is to improve science communication between scientists and the public. So without further ado, here is Dr. Sarah Myrie. Dr. Sarah Myrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So why science? When did you decide to become a scientist? Oh, gosh. I think I decided to pursue science when I realized that you could get paid to go scuba diving. <laughs> so sometime <laughs> as an undergraduate, I realized there was this this job called underwater scientist or a field scientist that did scuba diving. So I, it was um, a very self-involved decision, I think, at that point. Um, I really just wanted to see the world. I wanted to go places. So you're still quite young, actually, when you shifted to climate science. So why climate science specifically? Originally, I, you know, I had taken a geology class as an undergrad, and it was sort of that classical rocks for jocks introduction into um, a very narrow field of geology, essentially. And I thought at the time, like, oh, this is not for me. Um, I'm not into this. Um, and it, it's funny how you make preconceived decisions about things. But then when I, I got my degree in biology and then spent a bunch of time underwater, and actually uh, I spent like a thousand hours underwater in both the Atlantic and then in the equatorial Pacific. And somewhere in the middle of the Pacific on a boat working for the federal government, I just had this realization that, you know, this these Beautiful biological systems are are so closely tied to the 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 structure of this planet, the climate of this planet, and these big big picture Earth systems around us. And I realized at the time, like I was not prepared to understand those things. So I chose then to focus on going back to graduate school, which is where I then specialized in in climate change and also in the ecology of of marine ecosystems in the past. So, you know, back then, climate change, it wasn't a big headliner in the news, was it? I mean, there wasn't the same sense of urgency. No, I mean, I think the the pace and the the tenor of the coverage on climate change has really changed in the last 10 years. This is about 10 years ago now. So, you know, it was in the cultural milieu. It was absolutely being discussed, even up to pop culture, but things are different now. I mean, we've had enormous record-breaking events, global temperature events that I think have reframed some of the conversation. I mean, in those early days when we all talked about climate change, you know, the response was to, you know, buy a Prius or to recycle. And that's all really useful. And those things are, you know, really useful now. But I think things are more dire now. The landscape's changed a bit, no? Yep. The landscape has changed and is going to continue to change. It's a brave new world for sure. So let's talk a bit about being a woman in science. Was there a moment in college or later when you realized that your gender or being a woman would be a factor in navigating your career? Actually, I would say that it was during fieldwork experiences as an undergrad where I I realized that 
I was being invited or allowed into situations, not because of my mind, but because of my sex appeal and the interest in more senior men around me, kind of surrounding them themselves with younger women for the ego, for the power dynamic of it. And I remember having a moment as an undergrad where I really saw that clearly and how that message of your brain is not as important as the currency of your body and the sexual appeal of your body to the male gaze, that sunk in real deep as an undergrad. So so yeah, I mean, I could tell you story after story. Right, that's really interesting. I haven't heard the the phrase male gaze since reading Naomi Wolf, you know, the beauty myth. But but so so you wrote something. Yep. You were a part of the the science marches in Seattle, and you wrote about how the election changed something for you, and and how mm. it showed you your obscene privilege, the, the obscene privilege that oh. you carry. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think. <clears throat> I think this election helped me wake up to the nightmare of racial violence in this country, a nightmare that people of color have always experienced in this country that I, as a white woman, was able to engage with and then turn away from when I chose because of the privilege of walking around in a a white lady's body with the privilege of having grown up with white families in Seattle people that had access to education and many generations of upper middle class incomes. So, I mean, the election really broke a lot of things inside of me. And it, there's a lot of, um, there, I'm thankful that I get to be here now and that I now can see things more clearly to, to learn how to show up for people of color and for racial violence and for social justice. Um, so I'm doing that work right now. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to, to do that every day. Right. You know, going back to your experience in, in school and the field work you were doing, you know, thinking about the privilege, it sounds like you were kind of aware of a certain privilege that you had even then. Do you think that women in science who didn't have the, the benefit of youth or beauty were treated differently in those same circumstances? Oh my God, absolutely. I mean, for example, I am 155 pounds right now. Like that's my weight. Uh, when I, when I was, when I was like really pregnant, like I gained so much weight as a pregnant lady. Right. And I, I gained like 70 pounds as a pregnant lady. And, and of course that's not the experience of living in a body that is quote overweight, but it was like the empathic experience, the, the, the experience of realizing that the world looks at my body as a woman and we are all partitioned into fine scale, you know, gradients from skinny and the most valuable to overweight and the least valuable. Like, oh, it's a freaking nightmare, right? Our bodies as women are the primary currency for our professional and personal lives. And (laughs) it's so rough, right? Because you can show up as a woman every damn day and be a dedicated professional and a loving person and a connected member of the community, and yet you still can't get your foot in the door or get as much attention from the power structure around you because you know you don't look a certain way in a certain kind of clothing. And <laughs> it's 
it's it's challenging, right? It that I mean, there's a there's some righteous anger around that that I think women that we just kind of live with. That's interesting. I had a, a similar experience when I became pregnant. I, I gained sixty five pounds, <laughs> and and you know it's 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 interesting to live with this the contradiction of you know being aware enough to realize mm-hmm. that you have a certain privilege, right? Understand how it's used unfairly in society, but then also to be put in a situation where you don't have control of it. And a totally natural part of what we as women do in our lives. Like, right. you know, getting pregnant and gaining weight is so healthy and wonderful and appropriate and, you know, completely normal. So, but, but yet the culture tells us as pregnant ladies, like, don't do that. You should be able to keep your bottom, you know, real tight as a pregnant lady. And (laughs) so the the messages are just, they sink in really deep, you know, Um, and you have to work actively to separate yourself from the toxic aspects of the culture. Right. But you can separate yourself, but it doesn't separate itself from you. People will still treat you in a certain way and judge you. Indeed. Yeah. And it, it was also interesting to learn just how fleeting that currency is, right? You know, just how precarious the currency that, you know, women you know can use at times and not use at other times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It costs you like you don't see a lot of very femme scientists, right? We we're out there. Right in terms of gender expression, but I think, for example, I'll just use myself because I don't want to generalize. When I was in graduate school, I definitely did not femme up in the workplace. And yeah, I was at a a laboratory, but even still, like, it was a sort of a distinct decision to kind of be more masculine in my appearance and fit in, basically, with the culture and I think that that piece, you know, then I got married, I got divorced, which really was challenging and like introduced me to a whole nother level of sort of kind of coming to terms with your presentation in the world and, and women's lives in the world. Because, you know, a divorced woman is not viewed in the same way as a divorced man. And that was a very interesting and visceral experience so anyway, on the other side of all that stuff, I've got my PhD, I'm divorced, like, so I'm here I am in the middle of my life, and now much more confident and comfortable expressing feminine gender in the workplace. Like, it's who I am. It's the way that I want to walk through the world. And it, I feel much more powerful. Maybe it's because I now have my doctorate. Maybe it's just because I've grown up a little bit. Now, I really... I love going to work and being feminine and sexy and feeling embodied and powerful. Right. You know, that's really interesting. It's that women, you know, we're kind of stuck in this stance of being apologetic, Mm -hmm. whether we're too feminine or too sexy, or if we're not sexy enough, is this constant state of trying to appease the watcher, the person who's, who's judging us. That's right. Yeah. And it's really complicated because, you know, I know that I have, so Here's the thing, my gender, like I, I feel feminine in the world. I'm attracted to men. That's where I'm at. Like it's about sex basically. And, and yet we also femme up for the supplication to the structure of male power around us. So as a woman who wants to be feminine in the world, but also doesn't want to undermine the women around me that are not feminine and doesn't want to undermine 
the progress towards an equitable society, I, I need to look directly at how I use my feminine presentation to supplicate to male power. And that piece is like, I'm just learning and I'm like that. I just cracked that door open recently and realized like, oh shit, I, I use pieces of feminine presentation in the world in ways that basically are, I are, it's about using attention and getting power. And so, so there, there's another piece that's really complicated. Right. Do you, do you carry some guilt? I feel like I hear some guilt in your voice. Do you carry guilt over that? Totally. I mean, there are so many ways that I have invested myself in the patriarchy and assumed a passive role in the patriarchy and in the racist society around us that I didn't, I didn't at the time know that I was doing. I, I think you, you develop a critical eye, a deepening of self-awareness as you grow, especially when you're trying to grow out of a bubble of privilege. Um, I think you really have to grow up in order to see your privilege more and ever more clearly. Um, so yeah, I carry some, I, I carry deep guilt um, around the way that I have walked through the world, but I'm also committed to the path. So I know like moving forward, I, you, you know, once you see things, you can't unsee them. So that's, that at least helps me know, like, I'm going to continually get better at this. Right. Right. You know, you also refer to yourself as a loud mouth and a difficult, nasty woman, <laughs> which is, you know, one of the popular memes during the election. And, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot, this kind of the nasty woman phrase or, you know, label that we've taken on. It's and, so grotesque. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> It is, but you know, I think at the time, <laughs> yes, know, at the time, yeah, it was it was empowering. You know, it was mm-hmm. the the classic, you know, take back something that was intended to be negative mm-hmm. and use it, and you know, take take its power away. No, but I've been thinking about, you know, it's, the the meme is still pretty popular. But does that, well, mean, yeah, the original use of it was was grotesque. Just to right, the original use of it was grotesque, and it was intended to have a different meaning, obviously, but. I've been thinking a lot about our using it in this supposedly positive light. And, and if that mm-hmm. means that we've lost the battle of being viewed in a negative light when we exhibit the same behaviors that, that men do. So if a, a man, if he's nasty, you know, it's, it's translated as tough, right? If a woman is a loud mouth mm-hmm. and a man, it's translated as assertive by embracing those terms are we, you know, throwing in the towel saying that we, we've lost this battle? We might as well allow people to paint us in this negative light and then we will turn it around. Or maybe that will never happen. I mean, maybe it's about embracing our righteous anger and as women being able to look directly at this. Like, we need to advocate for our own voices. You know, when I have been, for example, angry in public over, over public disrespect in situations where a male colleague would be as well have his own right to his own anger, the anger of women is unpalatable in public. And, and yet we are angry for real reasons, for reasons that have, have righteous justice in mind regarding our lives, our voices, the role of women, equity. Like, oh my God, it just, the voices of women are so important right now. There are many paths to this, right? I, I would never tell women, like, don't use the moniker of nasty woman because it, it is, there's a beauty in it in, in reclaiming that space. 
But we all have to take, I think, individual different paths in order to get to that shared goal of raising our voices and honoring the experience of women, women of color, um, people that have been disenfranchised, you know, the, the people that have been actively targeted and marginalized and harassed people that at the that are experiencing racial violence i mean yeah i i mean that is that is such a key question right like how do we reclaim the strength of our voices when our bodies have been when we have been told by the a man in the most powerful public office that our bodies are merely to be grabbed when available to be assaulted and harassed at whim. So I, you know, I don't know how to do this work very well. Like I want to be a strong woman in public. I want to be professional. I I want to serve the public with, you know, with science and with evidence. And yet on the back end, like I'm a woman, right? I have experienced sexual assault. I've experienced sexual violence. I've been sexually harassed in the workplace. Like I don't always feel safe in the world. And that that's because I walk around in the body of a woman and what we do to women's bodies in this culture. And so we, we live in this dichotomy um, as women, so vulnerable and yet trying to be strong and, and strong for the people around us. Right. You know, I was talking to uh, Miriam Zringhalem. She's the head of the New York chapter of 500 Women Scientists, and you're the head here in Seattle. But yeah. I asked her that same <laughs> I asked her that same question about, you know, whether she felt safe because both of you are in roles that have not been in a favorable light for this administration. You're women and you're scientists. And then her, on top of that, her parents were immigrants from Iran. And I can't imagine most people, most yeah. groups feeling safe in the current political climate, right? Even if you aren't a woman of color, just being a woman in light of those Access Hollywood tapes and the things, you know, that the raw misogyny that we've heard since then, right? So it's interesting. We don't often say it out loud, but I think a lot of people feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, so the experience of feeling unsafe through the the election of Donald Trump and the the, the rise of this anti-woman, anti-expert, anti-immigrant, anti-people of color, hate, hate rhetoric, you know, I experienced that emotional wave. And I was talking to a colleague of mine and she was so, I will always remember what she said because she said, you know, like, look, you don't feel safe, but think about all the people around you that never felt safe. Right. And Right. And extend yourself <laughs> yeah. to the experience of the people that 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 this that the election of this racist and um, uh, the election of basically white power into the presidency was something that they might have anticipated because of their experience of racial violence. So that, like you know, that's a window into growth right there, and it was an it's an opportunity for you know all of us ni- nice white ladies to get a grip <laughs> and to extend ourselves into the experience of intersectional feminism and other marginalized people around us. So in some ways, this also has been a gift, right? This experience, because you get to grow when you get to see the world from, um, from with new eyes.
So what did the election change for you in terms of how you do your job? Because you've always been pretty comfortable in, in public, right? And you've, you've been you know, very prolific and, you know, give lots of, of talks. So what, what do you think shifted for you? I am like working nonstop right now. And the, the continuum between my work life and my activism, you know, there's a lot of things in, across that continuum. One of the things that we've seen with the Trump administration is the devaluation of basic evidence and basic analytical quantitative ways of measuring the world. You know, as Catherine Hayhoe, a, a very famous climate communicator and climate scientist says, you know, a thermometer is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. And yet we see this deep partisan divide across basic evidence. We see a complete circus demonstrations in the highest levels of the federal government, highlighting denialist and contrarian speech about climate. It's a crazy place to be in. And so being a woman aside, but being a, a physical scientist and someone who has studied the relationship between earth systems, ecosystems, and human resources, we are courting a level of risk that is just, uh, it, it is awful for us to be doing this as a society, as a culture. And we need to use evidence basically to back out of that scale of risk, right? To change the systems around us, to reduce the kind of risk that future generations will experience because of climate change. So, you know, having an administration that doesn't value evidence, I think to me has just lit a fire under my backside regarding the importance of science and leadership um, in the culture, trying to show up for the importance of evidence for reducing risk and reducing cost for the public. It's so key right now. Right. You know, and I think that's one of the scariest things for me about the current political climate is this kind of post-rational world we're in. It goes beyond not trusting or dismissing expertise, but it, it goes a step beyond that. So I think what, what you know, a portion of the electorate want, they actually want people who are not experts to become competent in, in a specific field. So it's beyond just like not trusting expertise, but they specifically want to elect people who are not experts then expect them to fix things that are broken. For instance, you know, the director of HUD who has absolutely no experience in, in you know, urban development or housing. Yet this is the person that we desire to, to run this office, right? It's crazy. And I, I, I think that's, that's even beyond not trusting experts. It, it's just a travesty of appropriate investment. I mean, we pay these people's salary, right? We want them to be able to produce the highest quality of work. And the value of expertise means that we can solve problems more quickly, more cheaply. We can reduce the risk for people in the cities, for food systems, for health systems, for our transportation system. I mean, these are all things that we want. We want to live in a society that is safe, that is inexpensive, that has um, options for, you know, social mobility, where we have a robust middle class. Like, this is good for everybody. This is about shared values. I share that outrage, right? And I, and yet, I, you know, part of the challenge is finding ways to talk to people about our shared values. Even if we come from you know, blue or red, deep blue and deep red demographics. 
So I am frustrated, but I, I want to shine that light back on myself and figure out like, what am I doing that sends a message that I don't respect people that, that don't hold my same worldview? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I do understand it. You know, but the thing I think that is worrying that, that in some circles, if you walk into the room and you have the label on a scientist or expert, people will immediately just, certain people will just stop listening to you. And, you know, I think that, you know, scientists, I mean, generally are are viewed as kind of smug and unapproachable, especially in in the topic of, of, of especially with climate science, because the more critical things get, the more dire they get, climate deniers are the left's favorite target, you know, for ridicule. And it's kind of a, I was thinking about this earlier, it's kind of a form of bullying in a way, in that it reminds me of the, you know, the classic scene you'd see in movies where you'd have this daft brute, you know, knocking the nerd to the ground. And then the the nerd's rebuttal is, you know, insulting his intelligence, right. <laughs> which, which is, I think is, you know, what we're doing on a certain level, which doesn't help help anyone. It certainly doesn't help, you know, people get on board to, you know, fighting climate change. No, it that that whole dem- um, dynamic is really dysfunctional. That's why science communication is so important because if scientists are going to show up to lead culturally, to lead institutions, to hold elective office, scientists need to be able to not show up in public and be this jerk, this this isolated, you know, ego. Um, without empathy, without pluralism, without the capacity to know that, you know, there are many ways of knowing the world and and science is one of them and the human experience is is bigger than just science. You know, we this is the opportunity cost of scientists in public showing up and essentially discrediting the broader field, right? And I've done this and and many of us do have done this. Like it is so easy to cost the community by not communicating clearly or not not representing yourself as a relatable human, someone who could be your neighbor. Um there there's a lot of complexity inside of communication that is just sort of born out in real time. You have to practice communication. You can't just write a manuscript. Um so, well, that isn't something that comes easily to a lot of people, but especially for for scientists. I mean, they're kind of used to being around colleagues, you know, their peers, who have mm-hmm. as much information about their topic as they do, right? And they, and there are very few people who are like yourself. Like this seems to come naturally to you. You know, your role as a public scientist and communicating with you know outside of your comfort zone. But, you know, there are very few people like you. you know, if you, if I were to go out and ask people, you know, who's your favorite scientist or name a scientist, you know, they'd say Neil deGrasse Tyson or, or Bill Nye, you know, those public celebrity scientists. But the average scientist doesn't have that charm and that appeal to reach, <laughs> reach a large group of people. And the problem is, is that when you have people who do have those skills, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye, for instance, they often are in front of their own tribes, like people who don't need to be convinced that, you know, climate change is, is real. Right. And I, and I'm not really sure if there's any value in that beyond entertainment. I hear where you're coming from. Right. So science comes across a whole continuum, right? Science is wonder and it's magic, but it's real magic. You know, it humbles us. It teaches us how beautiful the world is, how complex life is, um, how vast the universe is. Like science is, Science keeps you up at night, right? It's amazing. 
But yet on the other side of the continuum, science is over here, like holding down the fort on public health, on goods and services and costs of our food system. Science is informing day-to-day granular decisions on city planning, on water quality, and everything in between, right? So yeah, science is entertainment, but then science is this practical, gritty, problem-solving, applied framework for essentially serving the public. Yeah. Well, you know, let's actually talk about some of the things that are that were recently in the headlines. So G20, when we did this recording, G20 was happening and, you know, we were publicly chided for leaving the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, it's been about a month, I think, since we've been out of the Paris mm-hmm. Climate G- Agreement. And it, basically the world was wagging their fingers at the U.S. for pulling out, you know, which is a, a pretty embarrassing <laughs> position to be in. But I, I, I think the thing, <laughs> the thing that's not clear for me is the motivation behind pulling out of the agreement. Trump tweeted a lot before the election and years before, you know, mocking climate change and, you know, calling it a hoax. And since he's been elected, you know, there's been silence. He's been kind of backtracking. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, things switched and then he just kind of pulled us out of the Paris Climate Agreement, pulled that trigger that we didn't expect to happen. I am struggling to understand the motivation behind this. Oh, indeed. Myself as well. Um, You know, so many of the actions of the administration are just so incoherent and damage for damage's sake. You know, I hate to think at at some level, I think it's like a dog whistle for his base to again disenfranchise the U.S. from a role in international leadership and to devalue the role of experts and what to, I think, the right are touchstones of the left's agenda. At, at one point, I, rem- I, I remember this statistic, but I, I, I'm going to cite something that I don't know where it came from. At, <laughs> at one point, I, I was told that gay marriage and climate change were the two most controversial issues, the most polarized social issues in the United States. And so... <laughs> it's so challenging to have this very basic piece around the way that the earth system functions being then forced into a partisan paradigm that it it should never have been in in the first place. It's not a a Republican or a Democratic, uh, you know, this is about basic information, right? And, And we use partisan ideology as a lens We shine that lens on information to decide policy solutions, policy levers. This is, again, where you get back to the the physical science, the the frustration of physical scientists, right? Because we can't make sense of it. It doesn't make sense. And it shouldn't be this way. And it's a political reality right now. This is why I think, you know, many scientists right now are, are, are becoming more and more socially and politically engaged because it is so inappropriate for this basic evidence to be distorted in a partisan narrative. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't, but I, I don't see evidence that, that climate science has been politicized in any other Western nation or any nation in the way that it has in America. That part is kind of senseless to me. I don't understand how you could politicize fact, but we've managed to do it. But I, I think that you're right that in, in part, this is 
partly about, you know, it's a dog whistle. It's also about his ego, right? You know, he has been on the receiving end of ridicule about his intelligence, right? And about his competence. And, you know, there's been, there's been some, you know, assertions mm-hmm. that, you know, he's mm-hmm. done the same thing in response to the Women's March, pulling support for Planned Parenthood, rolling out lots of, you know, anti-reproductive services from women. And that's a response, a revenge response for the Women's March. And, you know, this could be similar. It's funny. I have a toddler and uh, um, the the caveman antics of a toddler are being borne out at the highest levels of the federal government right now. And the lack of emotional maturity that this man demonstrates in public is so baffling to me. And it is, it is so frustrating because, you know, you see women in public service, we have to toe every line of accountability and accuracy. Women pin themselves down in public service to the finest degree of accuracy and appropriate presentation of their expertise. And in order to walk that fine line, right? And, and yet we see a man in the highest level of public service, just this incoherent, tangled disaster of statements that conflict with each other, one position after the next, no center line, no, no depth underneath any of the policy frameworks that he presents, um, no accountability to past statements, um, and no transparency no no clear leveling with the public saying i'm acting in your best interest this is not normal it's a stunning dystopian paradigm that we're living in right now <laughs> no you're absolutely right and 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 i think your comparison to a toddler is apt and i think i made a conscious decision recently to not spend too much time analyzing mm-hmm. the behavior of a toddler because you won't you won't get very far right and right. at this at this juncture yeah. i i and i think one of the reasons why you know i have the podcast is that i want to kind of move beyond you know kind of step over the toddler that's right. And go to solutions. But I feel like with, with climate change, you know, pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement was so big and it seems, you know, insurmountable to me that I'm struggling to find any answers. So there's some local governments and, and mayors that are committing to the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. And I think that's really helpful. But the problem is, I think that there have been fewer than 150 cities in the U.S. that have made this commitment. And that only represents less than a quarter of the impact that, that the U.S. as a whole would have on the climate. So I'm not really it's sure. It's not enough. Yeah, it's not enough, yeah. right? Yep, it's not enough. And that reality was true, I think, before and after the Paris Agreement. So we have a lot of work to do. And Yes, pulling out of the Paris Agreement fractures the landscape of leadership on climate action. And in in some ways, that may be a good thing. And in other ways, it's a bad thing. The strength of American leadership at the highest levels of international agreement has been critical for us, for our economic growth, and for the currency of our nation on the international decision-making plane. That's how we grew out of the Second World War I, it is a clear devaluation of our leadership. And I want to be clear how not normal that is and how important American leadership is. And yet in this new state with the fractured landscape of leadership, we now need to look to smaller units of decision-making 
for that same kind of commitment and for the kind of sort of solution-based, engineering-based, creative ideas that will come out of, of a fractured landscape. Um, so there's not one path towards the reduction of greenhouse gases. There are, are many, many paths. There are thousands of paths to get there. The problem is leadership. So, I mean, I think, you know, we, that, that means like as citizens, our job is to show up right now and to show up for local politics and state level politics and to show up for our own decisions as consumers. There are a lot of ways that we can assume more responsibility as citizens. Do you think that there is value in people pressuring their local politicians to declare a solidarity with, with Paris, the Paris agreements? Um, like I said, it's, it's only, I, I think, less than 150 cities have committed. I absolutely do. And I think it's important for institutions like universities to commit to them. And I think it's important for business leaders to commit to them too. It behooves American business to align with the Paris Agreement and to ensure that the cost of climate change down the line can be reduced right now. So this is about business, absolutely. And this is about the economic interests that we have in maintaining the agricultural and transportation and um, the water resource structures that are already in place with the infrastructure in the United States. So there are the, the interests in aligning with climate change action cross so many different demographics, people of faith, uh, business interests, outdoor recreationists, people in uh, high latitude places, people in Alaska, people in um, equatorial places, people in um, like the equatorial Pacific and low-lying islands, people that live on coastal cities, people that live in the interior of continents, which will experience, um, which are likely to experience um, much more extreme heat and cold events. The risks of climate change actually unite us across so many different demographics. And essentially, you know, if you live on planet Earth, you might want to get on this bandwagon because it behooves all of us to act collectively to prevent the kind of disruption to Earth systems that will come with unmitigated climate change. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned business. I'm curious to see what would happen if people voted with their, their wallets for companies that were not in support of climate change action. In the same way that people, you know, stopped shopping at companies and retailers that were aligned with the Trump brands and Ivanka's, you know, line of shoes and jewelry or, you know, the things that she sells. And, you, you know, you saw companies moving away from those brands because the public spoke. And I think we haven't seen that kind of widespread activism. Yeah, activism towards companies who don't align with climate change action. Right. And it would be interesting to see what would happen there. So there's a New York Magazine piece that got lots of attention, lots of headlines, and it was titled, When Will Climate Change Make the Earth Too Hot for Humans? And it was a pretty scary article. And, but, you know, the pieces that were done about this piece, many of them asked the question whether, you know, the statement or this, whether the article mm -hmm. was too dire, whether it was too scary. But, you know, at this juncture, is there such a thing? Can you be too dire when you're talking about well, climate change? You know, I, I've been thinking about this dynamic, the, the dichotomy between, you know, things are too, you know, being scary and not being scary enough, being, being alarmed and not being an alarmist. And, you know, one of the things I think we want to do is when we talk about this, when we're piecing apart, you know, how do we do this work better? How do we talk about climate in public and 
I think when people learn about climate change, there are a lot of really basal emotions that people experience that maybe you have experienced that I definitely have experienced. Fear, guilt, anxiety, you know, understanding that, you know, the the way that I get around town in my Honda is contributing to this enormous global problem along with me eating a hamburger makes me feel a lot of unbidden emotions, right? You know, thinking about my kid growing up in the Pacific Northwest in a future of sea level rise and warming in Eastern Washington so that the, the Eastern Washington food system is destabilized, you know, that, that gives me anxiety. So these, these basal emotions that, we, that, that come naturally, you know, I, I have colleagues that are environmental psychologists and I listen to them. And what I understand is that when people experience these kind of basal emotions, what happens is it, there's a cognitive disruption in that experience that prevents people from really looking at information directly, right? And so <laughs> learning how to sit with those emotions and to vent those emotions and to acknowledge those emotions is one of the pathways towards reducing the anxiety around the conversation and getting us down to the ground and saying, yeah, like this is uncomfortable, no one wants this. And yet, because this is so uncomfortable and so so frightening, frankly, we need to look directly at this in a practical way. To do the work, like I, I got my doctorate on this stuff. Like I thought about this for six years and I, I martyred myself on this information. I was scared all the time, frankly, as a doctoral student about the scale of the, of the changes, the risks that come, the the importance of our connection to a living planet. These are really big pieces and it's understandable that people are scared by them. But we still need to function through those emotions and we need to help people around us arrive at a safe place through the process of learning about climate change. For example, what happens in a lot of classroom settings, this is what I see. Okay, so, you know, Climate change is a global scale crisis that is going to impact every living animal and ecosystem and every person that every that ever lives on this planet from now into the future permanently. And uh, we don't have scalable solutions at this moment. It's a, a it's a global scale crisis. And we'll see you on Monday for the next test. Do you know what I mean? Like there there is n- no there's no welcoming people to process that that information in a way that that actually is a very human and emotionally intelligent way. You know, we need to give students an opportunity to say, well, wait a second, what does this mean? And what does this mean to my friend and my colleague? And how do I integrate this information in a compassionate, safe space, in a, in a way that is emotionally intelligent about processing the scale of information that comes with climate change? So we can do this work better. Right. I actually didn't realize that there was a field of environmental psychology, which is really needed right now for everyone. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about how people think about these problems, what happens in the brain when you think about big problems, when, when you experience different kinds of emotions, all of those things can actually be really helpful as a, a climate communicator and as a, just a human being, like learning how we as humans deal with discomfort for a long time as a perfectionist, as a scientist, you know, I had this idea like, you know, I'm, I'm going to win at life 
as long as I, you know, just keep making the right, the quote unquote right decision, you know, I, I won't feel those difficult feelings. I won't have loss. And, and then, you know, the real part of, of human life happens. Death and divorce and change happen regardless of whether you make good or bad decisions. And so how you grow through those experiences of, of loss, how you sit with loss, how it can teach you about who you are and what you want in this world and where your values are. You know, those are all the real rich pieces around, you know, getting older <laughs> and, and growing up and actually bringing your best self to your professional life is also sort of tied in, in all of that. And so what's your ask of other scientists? Well, I think on the short term, I think scientists need to show up for racial justice and racial violence. But in the acute, the real heartbeat of, of the need of the nation right now is ensuring that our colleagues, people of color, are safe and that their lives are, are valued by the state in the same way that the lives of any of my white colleagues would be valued. So that, I think that that's the entry point right now. But I think on a longer term vision around seeing our careers as scientists in the way that we interface with the rest of the world, I would say that scientists need to speak with the public about the scale of risk that is coming. And scientists need to risk steps of professional advancement in order to speak truth in public. And we, we as scientists, we need to see that now is the time. This is the window where we get in front of this freight train. And it is worth it to do the right thing. It may not be the easy thing, but it is the right thing. And our our bubble of middle-class American privilege is going to pop in a future of unchecked climate warming. And there are a lot of very motivating reasons right now for, for scientists to be loud, be uncompromising in their agenda around social justice and equity and the value of the lives of people of color and uncompromising in their presentation of the importance of climate action at local, state, federal, and international levels. Stephen Hawking, he just did a, an interview with BBC and, you know, he said that we're closing in on the tipping point where global warming becomes irreversible. Mm -hmm. But he said that climate change is one of the great dangers we face and it's one we can prevent if we act now. What does he mean if we act now? What can we do? I don't really know where his statement is coming from on that. I, <laughs> I don't know. That's a very quixotic statement because, yes, the actions that we take right now, they matter a lot. The kinds of decisions that we make in the next 20 to 50 years will shape the trajectory of the planet moving forward on a geological time frame. We have already altered the planet on a scale that will will change the planet's trajectory moving forward for thousands to tens of thousands of years. So th things are going to be different. The question is how different and how expensive. What's the cost? So I agree. You know, Stephen Hawking. This is a this is an enormous challenge. But think about, you know, just to reframe it, think about we're, we're living in the future, right? This is a, a science fiction fantasy that, we, that is playing out in front of us. And think about the things that, have, that science has done 
and think about the, the progress that we've made in social justice and equity. We are on the path, right? We have, we have the tools in the toolbox to solve these problems. And there is a road forward for the preservation of the, the things that we value the most and for the conservative approach towards mitigating risk and cost so this is not about doomsday. This is about showing up in the 21st century and actually being adult, an adult in the 21st century and realizing, you know, if I have the privilege of having a computer in my back pocket, I also have the responsibility of understanding my role in this complex global system and showing up for social justice and climate action. You know, I was, I was partly asking that question for myself because I hear it pretty often. People say, we, we must act now. And I just don't know. And then they stop. And, I, <laughs> and then I don't know what to do. It's like, yes, I'm ready to act. Please tell me what to do. And then, the, you know, the, the article ends, the interview ends. But <laughs> Right. There's a hollowness to that, right? Because what do we do? And that, that goes back to there, you know, there's a thousand ways to get there. And there are ways at all levels of sort of individual and then collective organization. But it, you know, change is uncomfortable, right? And change requires some, some level of self-critical evaluation. And change means holding people in power accountable. All of that is hard and it takes time and it takes the kind of discipline and commitment that, you know, <laughs> that you, you know, that require is required of an adult life. And, and so, we, you know, that, that's why this is so hard because it pushes on all these buttons and it, it requires us to, to grow up and it requires us to not only value our immediate satisfaction, but to value the lives of our neighbors and people around the world and to value the lives of people that are, are going to be born in future generations. And so there's a bigness to it. There's a wholeheartedness to it that is required to stay in this fight and it's worth it. It is so worth it because, uh, you know, growing your heart and growing your capacity to show up for really big problems, it only gives back that kind of satisfaction of a life that has meaning and that the work that you do is important and that every little thing is actually, it actually matters. So, you know, I think for me, I've gotten a lot of traction as a, as a person in trying to show up for larger problems and for the lives of other people. Dr. Sarah Myrie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. 